Chapter Sixteen of Arizona Nights by Stephen Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Honk Honk Breed. It was Sunday at the ranch. For a wonder, the weather had been favorable. The windmills were all working. Bogs had dried up. The beef had lasted over. The remuda had not strayed. In short, there was nothing to do. Sing had given us a baked bread pudding with raisins in it. We filled it, and a wash basin full of it on top of a few incidental pounds of chili con, baked beans, soda biscuits, air tights, and other delicacies. Then we adjourned with our pipes to the shady side of the blacksmith's shop, where we could watch the ravens on top the adobe wall of the corral. Somebody told a story about ravens. This led to roadrunners. This suggested rattlesnakes. They started Windy Bill. Speaking of snakes, said Windy, I mind when they catch the great-granddaddy of all the bull snakes up at Lead in the Black Hills. I was only a kid then. This wasn't no such terrible long a snake, but he was more'n a foot thick. Looked just like a swarrel stalk. Man name of Trewilliger Smith catched it. He named this year bull snake Clarence and got us a plum gentle that followed him everywhere. One day old P. T. Barnum came along and wanted to buy this Clarence snake. Offered Trewilliger a thousand cold, but Smith wouldn't part with a snake no how. So finally they fixed up a deal so Smith could go along with the show. They shoved Clarence in a box in the baggage car. But after a while Mr. Snake gets so lonesome he gnaws out and starts to crawl back to find his master. Just as he is halfway between the baggage car and the smoker, the coupling give way, right on that heavy grave between Custer and Rocky Point. Well, sir, Clarence wound his head round one brake wheel and his tail around the other, and held that train together to the bottom of the grade, but it stretched in twenty-eight feet and they had to advertise him as a boa constrictor. Windy Bill's story of the faithful bull snake aroused to reminisce the grizzled stranger, who thereupon held forth as follows. Well, I've seen things and I've heard things, some of them honorary and some you'd love to believe. They was that gorgeous and improbable. Natural history was always my hobby and sporting events my special pleasure, and this yarn of Wendy's reminds me of the only chance I ever had to ring in business and pleasure and hobby, all in one grand merry-go-round of joy. It come about like this. One day a few year back I was sitting on the beach of Santa Barbara watching the sky stay up, and wondering what to do with my year's wages, when a little squinch-eye round face with big bow spectacles came and plumped down beside me. Did you ever stop to think, says he, shoving back his hat, that if the horsepower delivered by them waves on this beach in one single hour could be concentrated behind washing machines, it would be enough to wash all the shirts for a city of 451,136 people. Can't say I ever did, says I, squinting at him sideways. Fact, says he. And did it ever occur to you that if all the food a man eats in the course of a natural life could be gathered together at one time, it would fill a wagon train twelve miles long? You make me hungry, says I. And ain't it interesting to reflect, he goes on, that if all the fingernail parents of the human race for one year was to be collected and subjected to hydraulic pressure, it would equal in size the pyramid of Cheops. Look here, says I, sitting up. Did you ever pause to excogitate that if all the hot air you was dispensing was to be collected together, it would fill a bloom big enough to wave to you and me over that bull yard of palms to yonder gin mill on the corner? He didn't say nothing to that. Just yanked me to my feet, faced me towards the gin mill above mentioned, and exerted considerable pressure on my arm in urging of me forward. You ain't so much of a dreamer after all, thinks I. In important matters you are plumb decisive. We sat down at little tables, and my friend ordered a beer and a chicken sandwich. Chickens, says he, gazing at the sandwich, is a dollar apiece in this country, and plum scarce. 
Did you ever pause to ponder over the returns chickens would give on a small investment? Say you start with ten hens. Each hatches out thirteen eggs, of which allows a loss of, say, six for childish accidents. At the end of the year, you has eighty chickens. At the end of two years, that flock has increased to six hundred and twenty. At the end of the third year, he had the medicine tongue. Ten days later, him and me was occupying of an old ranch fifty mile from anywhere. When they run stagecoaches, this joint used to be a roadhouse. The outlook was on about a thousand little brown foothills. A road two miles, four rods, two foot eleven inches in sight, run by it in front of us. It come over one foothill and disappeared over another. I know just how long it was, for later in the game I measured it. Out back was about a hundred little wire chicken corrals filled with chickens. We had two kinds. That was the doings of Tuscarora. My partner called himself Tuscarora Maxillary. I asked him once if that was his real name. It's the realest little old name you ever hear tell of, says he. I know, for I made it myself. Like the sound of her. Parents ain't got no rights to name their children. Parents don't have to be called them names. Well, these chickens, as I said, was of two kinds. The first were these low-said, heavyweight propositions with feathers on their legs, and not much legs at that, called couching chinnies. The other was a tall, ridiculous outfit made up entire of bulging breast and gangle legs. They stood about two foot and a half tall and when they went to peck the ground, their tail feathers stuck straight up to the sky. Tusky called them Japanese games. Which the chief advantage of them chickens is, says he, that in weight about ninety percent of them is breast meat. Now my idea is that if we can cross them with these cotchin' chinny fowls, we'll have a low-hung, heavy-weight chicken running strong on breast meat. These Jap games is too small, but if we can bring them up in size and shorten their legs, we'll sure have a winner. That looked good to me. So we started in on that idy. The theory was bully, but she didn't work out. The first broods we hatched growed up with big husky cochin chinny bodies and little short necks, perched up on legs three feet long. Them chickens couldn't reach ground nohow. We had to build a table for them to eat off, and when they went out rustling for themselves, they had to confine themselves to side hills or flying insects. Their breasts was all right, though, and think of them drumsticks for the boarding house trade, says Tusky. So far things wasn't so bad. We had a good grub steak. Tusky and me used to feed them chickens twice a day, and then used to sit around watching the playful critters chase grasshoppers up and down the wire corrals, while Tusky figured out what'd happen if somebody was dumb fool enough to gather up something and fix it in baskets or wags or such. That was where we showed our ignorance of chickens. One day in the spring it hitched up, rustled a dozen of the youngsters into coops, and drove over to the railroad to make a first sale. I couldn't fold them chickens up into them coops at first, but then I stuck the coops up on age and they worked all right, though I will admit they was a comical sight. At the railroad one of them towerous trains had just slowed down to a halt as I come up, and the towerous was parading up and down allowing they was particular enjoying of the warm California sunshine. One old terrapin with gray chin whiskers projected over with his wife and took a peek through the slats of my coop. He straightened up like someone had touched him off with a red-hot poker. Stranger said he in a scared kind of whisper. What's them? Them's chickens, says I. He took another long look. Marthy, says he to the old woman, this'll be about all. We come out from my way to see the wonders of California, but I can't go nothing stronger than this. If these is chickens, I don't want to see no big trees. Well, I sold them chickens all right for a dollar and two bits, which was better than I expected, and got an order for more. About ten days later, I got a letter from the commission house. 
We are returning a sample of your arts and crafts chickens with the loving marks of the teeth still onto them, says they. Don't send any more till they stops pursuing of the nimble grasshopper. Dennis Bill will follow. With a letter came the remains of one of the chickens. Tusky and I, very indignant, cooked her for supper. She was tough, all right. We thought she might do better bowels, so we put her in the pot overnight. Nary bit. Well, then, we got interested. Tusky kept the fire going, and I rustled grease wood. We cooked her three days and three nights. At the end of that time, she was sort of pale and frazzled, but still giving points to three-year-old jerky on cohesion and other uncompromising forces of nature. We buried her then and went out back to recuperate. There we could gaze on the smiling landscape, dotted by about four hundred long-legged chickens swooping here and there after grasshoppers. We got to stop that, says I. We can't, murmured Tusky inspired. We can't. It's born in em. It's a primal instinct, like the love of a mother for a young, and it can't be eradicated. Them chickens is constructed by divine providence for the express purpose of chasing grasshoppers, just as the beaver is made for building dams, and the cowpuncher is made for whiskey and feral games. We can't keep em from it. If we was to shut em in a dark cellar, they'd flop after imaginary grasshoppers in the dreams, and die emaciated in the midst of plenty. Jimmy, we're up again the cosmos, the oversoul. Oh, he had the medicine tongue. Tusky had, and rising on the wings of eloquence that way, he had me faded in ten minutes. In fifteen I was wedded solid to the notion that the bottom had dropped out of the chicken business. I think now that if we'd shut them hens up, we might have. Still, I don't know. There was a good deal in what Tusky said. Tuscarora Maxillary, says I. Did you ever stop to entertain that beautiful thought that if all the dumb foolishness possessed now by the human race could be gathered together and lined up alongside of us, the first feller to come along would say to it, Why, hello, Solomon. We quit the notion of chickens for profit right then and there, but we couldn't quit the place. We hadn't much money for one thing, and then we kind of liked loafing around and raising a little garden truck, and, oh well, I might as well say so, we had a notion about placers in the dry wash back of the house. You know how it is. So we stayed on and kept a-raising these long legs for the fun of it. I used to like to watch em projecting around, and I fed em twice a day about as usual. So Tusky and I lived alone there together, happy as ducks in Arizona. About once a month somebody'd pike along the road. She wasn't much of a road, generally more chuck holes than bumps, though sometimes it was the other way around. Unless it happened to be a man horseback or maybe a freighter without the fear of God in his soul, we didn't have no words with him. They was too busy cussing the highways and generally too mad for social discourses. One day early in the year when the doby mud made ruts to add to the bumps, one of these automobiles went past. It was the first Tusky and me had seen in them parts, so we run out to view her. Owing to the high spots in the road, she looked like one of these moving pictures as to blur and wobble. Sounded like a cyclone mingled with cuss words and smell like hell on house cleaning day. Which of them folks don't seem to be enjoying of the scenery? says I to Tusky. Do you reckon that there blue trail of smoke from the machine or remarks from the inhabitants thereof? Tusky raised his head and sniffed long and inquiring. It's language, says he. Did you ever stop to think that all the words in the dictionary stretched end to end would reach? But at that minute I catch sight of something brass lying in the road. It proved to be a curled-up sort of horn with a rubber bulb on the end. I squoze the bulb and jumped twenty foot over the remark she made. Jarred off the machine, says Tusky. Oh, did it, says I, my nerves still wrong. I thought maybe it had grown up from the soil like a toadstool. 
About this time we abolished the wire chicken corrals because we needed some of the wire. Them long legs thereupon scattered all over the flats searching out their prey. When feed time come I had to screech my lungs out getting of them in, and then sometimes they didn't all hear. It was plumb discouraging, and I mighty nigh made up my mind to quit them, but they had come to be sort of pets and I hated to turn them down. It used to tickle Tusky almost to death to see me out there hollering away like an old bullfrog. He used to come out regular with his pipe lit, just to enjoy me. Finally I got mad and opened up on him. Oh, he explains, it just plumb amuses me to see the dumb fool at his childish work. Why don't you teach him to come to that brass horn and save your voice? Tusky, says I with feeling, sometimes you do seem to get a glimmer of real sense. Well, first of them chickens used to throw back somersets over that horn. You have no idea how slow chickens is to learn things. I could tell you things about chickens. Say, this year bluff about roosters being gallant is all wrong. I've watched them. When one finds a nice feed, he gobbles it so fast that the pieces fall down his throat like yearlings through a hole in the fence. It's only when he scratches up a measly one-grain quick lunch that he calls up the hens and stands noble and self-sacrificing to one side. That ain't the point, which is that after two months I had them long legs so they drop everything and come kiting at the honk-honk of that horn. It was a pretty sight to see him, sailing in from all directions, twenty foot at a stride. I was proud of him and named him the honk-honk breed. We did have no others, for by now the coyotes and bobcats had nailed the straight breads. There wasn't a wild cat or coyote could catch one of my honk-honks. No, sir. We made a little on our placer, just enough to keep interested. Then the supervisors decided to fix a road, and what's more, they done it. That's the only part in this yarn that's hard to believe, but boys, you'll have to take it on faith. They plowed her and crowned her and scraped her and rolled her, and when they moved on, we had the fanciest highway in the state of California. That noon, the day they called her a job, Tusky and I sat smoking her pipes as per usual, when way over the foothills we seen a cloud of dust, and faint to our ears was bore a whizzing sound. The chickens was gathered under the cottonwood for the heat of the day, but they didn't pay no attention. Then faint but clear we heard another of them brass horns. Honk, honk, says it, and every one of them chickens woke up and stood at attention. Honk, honk, it hollered clearer and nearer. Then over the hill come an automobile, blowing vigorous at every jump. My God, I yells to Tusky, kicking over my chair as it springs to my feet. Stop him, stop him. But it was too late. Out the gate sprinted them poor devoted chickens, and up the road they trailed in vain pursuit. The last we seen of them was a mingling of dust and dim figures going thirty mile an hour after a disappearing automobile. That was all we seen for the moment. About three o'clock the first straggler came limping in, his wings hanging, his mouth open, his eyes glazed with the heat. A sundown of fourteen had returned. All the rest had disappeared utter. We never seen them again. I reckon they just naturally run themselves into a sunstroke and died on the road. It takes a long time to learn a chicken a thing, but a heap longer to unlearn him. After that two or three of these year automobiles went by every day, all a-blowing of their horns, all kicking up a hell of a dust. And every time them fourteen Hong Kongs of mine took along after em, just as I taught em to do, laying to get to their corn when they caught up. No more of em died, but that fourteen did get into elegant training. After a while they got plumb to enjoying it. When you come right down to it, a chicken don't have many amusements and relaxations in this life. Searching for worms, chasing grasshoppers, and wallering in the dust is about the limits of joys for chickens. It was sure a fine sight to see em after they got well into the game. 
About nine o'clock every morning they would saunter down to the rise of the road, where they would wait patient until a machine came along, then it would warm your heart to see the enthusiasm of them. With exultant cackles of joy they trail in, reaching out like quarter horses, their wings half spread out, their eyes beaming with delight. At the lower turn they'd quit. Then after talking it over, excited like for a few minutes, they'd calm down and wait for another. After a few months of this sort of training, they got pretty good at it. I had one two-year-old rooster that made fifty-four mile an hour behind one of those sixty-horsepower panhandles. When cars didn't come along often enough, they'd all turn out and chase jackrabbits. They wasn't much fun at that. After a short brief sprint, the rabbit would crouch down plumb terrified, while the Hong Kongs pulled off triumphal dances around his shrinking form. Our ranch got to be pretty well known them days among automobilists. The strength of their cars was horsepower, of course, but the speed of them they got to rating by chicken power. Some of them used to come away up from Los Angeles just to try out a new car along a road with the Hong Kongs for pacemakers. We charged them a little something, and then, too, we opened up the roadhouse and the bar, so we did pretty well. It wasn't necessary to work any longer at that bogus placer. Evenings we sat around outside and swapped yarns, and I bragged on my chickens. The chickens would gather around close to listen. They liked to hear their praises sung all right. You bet they save. The only reason a chicken or any other critter isn't intelligent is because he has no chance to expand. While well, we used to run races with them, some of us would hold two or more chickens back with chalk line, and the started blow the horn from a hundred yards to a mile away, depending on whether it was a sprint or for distance. We had pulls on the results, gave odds, made books, and kept records. After the thing got knowed, we made money hand over fist. The stranger broke off abruptly and began to roll a cigarette. "'What did you quit it for, then?' ventured Charlie, out of the hushed silence. "'Pride,' replied the stranger solemnly. "'Haughtiness of spirit.' "'How so?' words Charlie, after a pause. "'Them chickens,' continued the stranger after a moment, "'stood around listening to me a bragging of what superior fowls they was until they got all puffed up. They wouldn't have nothing whatever to do with the ordinary chickens we brought in for eating purposes, but stood around looking bored and when there was no sport doing. They got to be just like that 400 he read about in the papers. It was one continual round of grasshopper balls, race meets, and afternoon hen parties. They got idle and haughty, just like folks. Then come race suicide. They got to feeling so aristocratic the hens wouldn't have no eggs. Nobody dared say a word. Windybill Snake, began the narrator genially. Stranger, broke in Windy Bill with great emphasis, as that snake, I want you to understand this. You're after my estimation that snake is nothing but an honorary angleworm. This is the end of chapter 16.